Welcome to Big Ideas, a podcast from Texas State University in San Marcos, Texas. I'm your host, Dan Seed, from the University School of Journalism and Mass Communication. We're joined on this episode by Dr. Rodney Rohde, a professor in the College of Health Professions and chair of the Clinical Laboratory Science Program. Dr. Rohde is an expert on infectious diseases, and he first joined us in early March to discuss what was then the emerging COVID-19 virus. Eight months later, Dr. Rohde, welcome back. Thanks, Dan. It's great to join you again. It's always great to talk about this particular pandemic as well as discuss some of the big idea issues that are going on at Texas State. So, well, thank you. Thanks for joining us again. And as we were chatting before we started recording here, a lot's changed clearly since March. When we talked in March, there was still so much unknown about this. What have we learned about this virus itself in that time? What's changed, I guess, maybe from that initial perception or look? And, and we can go from there. So what's changed? Sure. So I think what's changed, and again, wow. I mean, if you if you sit back and you look at, this really started impacting my life in late January, moved into February. And, and you know, we had our, our original podcast at that time and so much has changed. We've obviously learned a ton. Uh, we need to remember that this is a novel coronavirus. And typically these viruses cause the common cold. But like some of the other strains, like the first SARS and, and MERS, which had a higher fatality rate, this one came rolling out of Wuhan, China. And here we are eight months later, you know, approaching 230,000 dead in the United States, almost 9 million cases. That was certainly not the case back when we talked in March, when we were talking about things like case fatality rates and reproductive numbers. And I remember talking about uh, you know, how we might have to use that some guarded comes caution looking at those numbers because we just didn't know a lot about the virus at that time. And yes, so much has changed. I, now we know, obviously, that this virus is spread uh, rapidly through communities and through healthcare systems, uh, primarily by the respiratory route. We knew that early, but now we know that it's much more effective with respect to some aerosolization, that it can be spread over longer distances perhaps even more than six feet when you look at some of the research. I think we've also learned that you might remember when we were talking, uh, there was a lot of concern. Some of the early articles and interviews I was conducting, everyone was really worried about surfaces mm-hmm. and, and contact with different items. And I mean, everything from fast food to laundry to shopping. I mean, all the things that we went through during those early lockdowns. And they will always be important to understand that surfaces can be a risk with respect to viruses and microbes. But I think we see now that the primary transmission route is person to person through that aerosol spread. So just to kind of backtrack on what you talked about in terms of the fatality rate and where we were in March, just to reset for our audience, when we met for that podcast recording in March, that was in person. This interview is being conducted remotely. That was during the second week of March. And where we stood in terms of numbers around the world and in the United States at that time, 121,000 plus cases of COVID-19 globally with about 4,400 deaths in the United States. At that point, there were fewer than 1,000 cases and about 25 people had died from it. And now as we sit here in this last week of October, this will be released in November. So the numbers, of course, are going to change. But as we sit here in the last week of October, there were reported 43.5 million cases globally, 1.16 million people dead. And in the United States, 8.6 million cases and climbing. 
and a staggering 225,084 people dead from the virus, according to the Centers for Disease Control. For our audience to put that number in perspective, the Department of Defense reports 218,035 Americans are listed as death casualties as a result of World War I, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, and the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan combined. So, Rodney, from a scientific view, how did we get here? Well, we got here because early on, remember when this started in February, March, we had that kind of initial surge. And you Mm -hmm. kind of, if you remember back, it seems like a lifetime ago, but that was primarily in New York and New Orleans and, and Chicago and places like that. And then it subsided because we had that massive lockdown where we basically just didn't do anything. And then as we entered the summer months, right after Memorial Day, we had eased up a little bit, uh, both in Texas and in other places around the country. And we had that summer surge kind of in the Sun Belt. So you might remember that kind of dominating not only local news, but national news. Sure. And then now, of course, we're here we are again, I think. And when you look back at those waves, I'll just throw out a few more kind of interesting numbers. That first, and I'm not going to call them waves because this is really three surges during the first wave. Sometimes that gets kind of misrepresented. A true second wave is when the virus has adapted some and maybe changed a little bit. and You have a massive problem coming again. But the first wave back in late March was 9.7 deaths per 100,000 people in the U.S. And the second wave in July, it was about 20 and a half people per 100,000. And now we're at 23. So this third surge is just now starting. If you look at the numbers, you also might call Recently in the news, we just hit uh, an all-time record of cases per day. So we had like 83,000 the other day, more than any time during the summer. So we are entering, I think, a very dangerous time period for the country and the world for that period as we enter the, the winter months and we start worrying about people getting indoors. Being outdoors is certainly more healthy, but we've also, you know, again, I'm just going to say it, we've kind of failed as, as a country Uh, Early on, we had an opportunity, and we still continue to have these opportunities, which we can talk about a little bit, of going to a very strong, uh, firm, universal mask mandate, actually doing contact tracing, which is hard work in the public health world, but I firmly believe we could still do that. And we continue to have these conversations, you know, why this is happening, but we certainly have not done a good job in the United States. We are the number one country in the world Dan, that has over 20% of the deaths of the entire world, and, and our population is not near that of, of other places around the world. So I'm frustrated and I'm disappointed kind of at our response in the U.S., and, and that's not, that is not picking on any individuals within a lot of healthcare professions I know. I'm talking about a national strategy for testing, for contact tracing, and for kind of social distancing and, and just following good public health sense. Does it surprise you, coming from the background that you have, does it surprise you that it has gotten to this point and that the response has been lacking in this country? Yeah, yeah. I mean, in some ways, I'm not totally surprised, but that's on the side of, of preparation. I think we we could have been doing things for the past two to three decades, and many of my colleagues in this area healthcare and public health have been screaming about this for decades. But, you know, you run into the same things that most countries do. You you deal with, you know, I've been saying recently in writing about public health funding should be viewed as Department of Defense funding. If you can get ready for wars, you can get ready for this microscopic war. In fact, this may be more deadly, as you just iterated about the, the different wars we've been through. 
And, and so it, it really is frustrating on that front. But I am surprised that we've been through three kind of surges in this first peak now, and we continually can't seem to get our act together on a national testing strategy, as well as a consistent national communications effort around public health precautions with modeling and how to kind of handling that. Contact tracing alone is not easy. Uh, and one of the big differences, Dan, right now, I think that a lot of people don't think about that aren't kind of in the public health spectrum is that when you started, remember, this is very common sense. When you start with a virus, all it wants to do is amplify and spread. It's looking for new hosts that aren't immune. That's us right now. But when it started in February, March, you know, it was introduced into little index points around the country. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that bubbled up. That was obviously our best chance to contact trace and get things under control. We didn't do it. Then when that summer surge hit, when we had that opening up of the economy a little bit and we had that issue, again, we had an opportunity, I think, to kind of to do that. So what's happening right now in this third surge is we enter the end of October and kind of move into November is that now you have to remember really almost every state every state now has community transmission. In some states, it's gotten really dangerous and, and worrisome, especially in places that weren't being hit early on, like Montana, North Dakota, and some of the kind of the rural states, if you might. Uh, but even back in Texas, we're worried in El Paso. I mean, we're approaching, um, again, hospitalization rates and, and ICU beds and things like that that we've been, again, talking about throughout the past six or eight months. And here we sit again because we still have not seemed to learn our lesson on masking, distancing, and just hand hygiene, and, and ultimately contact tracing. You cannot stop these types of viral amplifications without limiting host transmission. And, and if you just kind of do it willy-nilly without really following through on that, then we're going to continue. We're going to continue to see these surges, and I predict that it's going to get worse before better. I want to get you open the door here to talk about Texas where we are. And I want to get to that because clearly sure. this has become a flashpoint, I suppose, in the last seven days, week or so. But I want to kind of tie this up here with what it is that we should be doing versus what we have done. And in March, we talked extensively about the importance of scientific communication and public health policy. We can't do anything about the last eight months, right? We can't go back in time and change That's anything. Right. But from where you sit, what needs to be done in those areas starting right now, today, going forward? Absolutely. We can always recalibrate. We can always recalibrate. So I appreciate the question. Let's just hit Texas. So Texas right now, uh, if you look at Worldometer, I'm, I'm not sure what site you were using, but over 900,000 cases, about mm -hmm. 18,000 plus deaths. And, and by the way, the, the case fatality rate in all areas, global Texas and the U.S., is right around two to two and a half. So that is a, at least a rough estimate. I think what we can do in Texas and around the country, obviously, is we continually have an opportunity to at least enforce or utilize language around a universal mask mandate, strongly encouraging it. Now, we get pushback, I know, from all sorts of different areas around, you know, it's not the perfect filtration device for a virus, and that's true. That is true. However, the data shows, the research shows, just from a physical distancing standpoint and the use of masks, we have seen way lower numbers in other countries that have adopted this. We've also shown this in experimental design using things like uh, using cloth mask and surgical mask and showing the effects of things like 
smoke or mist and things like that that go through it. And it absolutely stops it from traveling out five, six feet. So the science is there. The data is there. It's going to take some leadership to kind of move that forward. The other piece that's gotten a little better is testing. We have increased our testing nationally, but we're still struggling with sometimes getting that turned around. And I think a better message on what's the best test. For example, when should you use a screening rapid test versus a more confirmatory test like a molecular test and then kind of getting that hammered out so that hospitals, clinics, uh, public health labs know the algorithms to follow. This is not something that can't be done. This just takes effort and a clear message to do it. One of the, obviously, the good things that's happened in the last six to eight months is we have learned some new strategies on treatment. So now we know we have uh, the use of steroids. Dethmethasone is useful to help contain inflammation in the lungs. We know that we have an antiviral that seems to be doing pretty good work, as well as some brand new monoclonal antibodies that help neutralize the virus. So we have seen a dropping in the death rate, so to speak, but the number of cases is just amplifying like crazy. And so that death rate is still going to be a problem when you have more cases and more immunocompromised people getting it. You'll still see those numbers rise. Does it frustrate you? You've dedicated your life to this, this kind of work, studying viruses, public health communication, all that, all that that we've talked about. Does it frustrate you that not only has the virus become politicized, but that people just for whatever reason don't want to listen to the data and listen to the experts? Dan, if I had a dollar for every every time I've tried to counter that action in the last six months, I probably could retire. Uh, it is so frustrating for public health officials, physicians, others in healthcare that have not only spent their life, but in the trenches right now watching people die. And just even if you take the death rate away and you just look at the morbidity surrounding this virus around heart issues and lung issues and some of the ongoing worries we have about the long-term effects of this. Remember, we didn't understand even chickenpox at one time in our history that would cause shingles 40 years later. We mm -hmm. really don't know the long-term effects of this infection. And that doesn't mean we have to panic. But yes, you are right. We need to get better about convincing the public. And I'm all ears for ways to figure this out. I've been dealing with this really for years now, where it crosses paths with anti-vaccination, anti-science, really in some ways anti-education. And I'm not sure what's happening in the world, uh, not just in the U.S., but it's certainly something we need to figure out rapidly. Yeah, and I would say that the last eight months have showed us that and showed a flaw in exactly what you're talking about there in our people's willingness to listen to this and the education aspect of it. You know, but one of the one of the difficulties, I think, is just trying to get people to understand science is about hypothesis testing. And so, I mean, I'll just throw this out there. You'll, you'll tend to get some responses back from different people saying, well, you know, Dr. Fauci said this eight months ago, or Dr. Burks said this six months ago, or Dr. Rohde said this five months ago. Mm -hmm. This is science, folks. This is science. We put out hypotheses. We back up and admit our mistakes when it's wrong, and we move forward. And that's that recalibration I think most of us keep talking about. Instead of just hammering this misinformation, disinformation, it's, it's actually quite dangerous for people to, to wander around without masks and go to events, go to bars, go to high, crowded, packed areas. And yes, you know, you can't live in a, live in a cave your whole life, but you can be smart. 
about interacting in that way. I haven't shut down my life. Right. I wear a mask. I'm careful. I don't go into packed places. I'm out doing a few things and, and kind of getting your mental health together. But you can't be ignorant to the fact that this virus does not care who you are or what state you live in. And I will say, just being here at the university, I'm sure that you've experienced this when you're here teaching in person. There's not a lot of people here. We have a large campus and seeing people is few and far between. And frankly, the numbers here at the university, the latest numbers, according to the the COVID dashboard, is since March 1st, there have been 775 total cases reported here at the university. And I feel like it's a prime example of that social distancing. It's a prime example of the mask wearing and the very conscious what you're interacting with, whatnot, that that works. So when we look at like a university like ours, and then we look at Texas as a whole, and we see that in the last seven days, according to the CDC, there have been 38,500 plus cases in the state of Texas, which is the most in the United States. What is happening here? Again, I just think people aren't paying attention. You just did a microcosm of something I'm very proud about. And I know our chief medical officer, Dr. Caranco, and so many others that jumped on board early in, in February, March to start looking at our roadmap to return. And, and I, I really think it's a successful model. Now, things can wax and wane depending on behaviors and what's going on as you come in from outside of the university right. community. But we've done a great job here. We are down in the 1.6 to 2.5% positivity rates during the last three weeks. Our all-time high was almost 10 right after Labor Day. I mean, masking, mandated masks, indoors and outdoors, being careful with crowds. We do have some online, obviously some online classes going on. My students are back face-to-face, but we're Mm -hmm. spread out in a room that usually seats 100 and we have 20 students. So, I mean, you can do these things with the right resources and the right messaging and the right leadership. And again, I'd I'd really would like to congratulate this university for doing a great job because I think when you look around the state, Texas State has done as best as can be expected with this issue. But within the state itself, again, I think the messaging and what I would call pandemic fatigue, you've probably seen that in the national news as well in the, in the, in the global news. It does sure. get tired, right? Yeah. I mean, this. I'm so ready to, to jump on an airplane and, and do some global travel or, or just go visit family and friends in the state. It's just getting old. And what I keep messaging with people is it may be just now entering one of the more dangerous phases this winter and moving into early spring. And I've tried to get people to kind of wrap their minds around, you know, stop looking at target dates that you hear from talking heads. I mean, just try to adapt to the situation, to the moment, try not to get caught up in all the social media misinformation that's out there and go to a reputable source and live your life, but live it safely and follow the instructions of those around you that are trying to help protect your health. Uh, there's a reason. There's a reason the science is important to understand, and, and we need to get there as a state and as a country. So you mentioned this, and, and in March, we talked about the flu and comparing this or looking at this similarly to the flu or the 1918 influenza outbreak, and now we're getting into the teeth here of flu season. Not only is it flu season coming up, but we've got Thanksgiving in four weeks, Christmas, New Year's, right? All those things where people gather closely indoors, You've got the flu coming in. I mean, I know that you don't have all the answers. Clearly, nobody does. But when we look at these next few weeks, next few months, 
What do we need to do? I know that we've kind of hammered this, keeping it distance and all this, but sure, sure. is this what makes this incredibly more dangerous? And are we in for something way worse than what we've seen if we can't do that? I hope not. Let me start by saying, get your flu vaccine, please get your flu vaccine. Now, one of the benefits from masking and distancing and limited air travel and some of the things we've seen the last few months is it's, it looks and appears. I just did a, a preparation for a webinar I'm doing next week over um, this same topic. And right now, flu is at all-time lows. I almost hate to say that out loud. Uh, we're doing a great job. Now, that's because it hasn't really blown up yet in the country, but there is some there is some definite synergy going on with hand hygiene and masking, all the things you just talked about, but that still means get your flu vaccine, get prepared, uh, and continue to kind of follow the same safety precautions that we're going through. I think that the thing I worry about primarily is that with the pandemic fatigue and thinking about that cold winter time kind of situation and really looking at the data uh, again just looking at the prediction models and seeing what could come without you know recalibrating and getting on board with contact tracing and all the things we need to see done some people are predicting you know some really high high cases and death rates by february i mean pushing up around seven eight hundred thousand people and that's just for some perspective, since you started with this, mm -hmm. if you look at the, the 1918 pandemic, I think the U.S. had about 675,000 deaths over three years. Mm -hmm. uh, we're, we, we could push that in the first year. So it, it's a serious matter. And I, I am, people can play with statistics and numbers, and you see this all over the place where they start talking about, well, in reality, that's like two deaths per 1,000 people or something like sure. that. And we, and we can handle that. Well, I don't know. Can we? I mean, if that's my mother who just was diagnosed with cancer and, and is now back on the road to recovery, I worry about her. I worry about my father. I worry about my healthcare professionals that are young and somewhat healthy, but they're in the trenches every day. I mean, there's some data recently that across 13 states from March to May, 6% of the people hospitalized with COVID-19 were healthcare workers. A third of them were nurses. 67% of them had direct patient contact. 70% were female, probably looking at the nursing population, and more than half were black or people of color. I mean, that's frightening to me. If you're not in that category, then maybe you don't feel as worried. But I know so many of these people in the healthcare professions and public health, it terrifies me, actually, to think about the numbers and the decimation. We talked about this, I know, last time. Yeah. If you start wiping out physicians and nurses and intensivists, I mean, these are specialists that spend... 10, 15, 20 years to become these experts, and they're not on every corner in the U.S. And when you lose this type of professional expertise, you don't replace it next year. Right. It'd be 10 years before we get these numbers back to decent numbers, and they're already at all-time lows. So there's so much, so much that this affects beyond just it's not going to happen to me that people need to get serious about it. If for no other reason than these things I'm talking about, health care for the entire country is at risk here. Yeah. And, and like you said, not only people with specialties that get sick or unfortunately pass away, but just that defense line, right? Of Absolutely. Doctors who triage patients and are taking care of them and are being moved from their specialties to ICU to do this kind of work. I mean, if that happens, we're in big trouble. We're in, we're in big trouble. And, I, and I'd be remiss not to mention my own profession, the medical laboratory that's been inundated with testing more so than ever in our career. And we're actually losing people to burnout and fatigue and people are kind of stepping out of the, you know, they're either retiring earlier 
or they're just jumping ship. They are so tired of working, you know, 10 days in a row of 12, 14 hour days that they're just, they're just burnt out. Again, that's another issue. That's probably another conversation, but all the healthcare professions are experiencing this just like teachers are just like anyone else who's dealing with this. But in those kind of frontline jobs where it matters for other people that these people are healthy, it's a concern. And so again, I hope I hope Texas, and I know Texas State's doing a great job, but I hope Texas and the country, regardless of what happens next week on Election Day, we have to look at this as a people problem. It's not a political problem. It's a public health national emergency, and we don't have to panic, but we have to act. We have to get some things together, and if that means nothing more than you doing the right thing in your community, then let's do it. Let's get on board and let's become our own kind of leading effort to get this under control in the next three to four months. Just a quick segue, because you brought it up with the laboratory folks and clearly those the students that you work with. I know in March, your students, we go into online, rotations get shut down and changed and all that. And then people graduate and all of a sudden they're on the front lines. What have you seen from your students as they've come back this fall in terms of maybe their enthusiasm or concern or or what are they showing you as they get ready, this crop gets ready to matriculate into the real world at some point? Yeah, overall, we're, we're very proud of all of our students here in the health professions college, including mine in the, in the medical lab science area. I think most of them, you know, entered this profession, even though it's not quite the same after you have the knowledge, uh, knowing that they would be in danger at times. I mean, at any given time, our students can be faced with with specimens or patients that are TB positive, HIV positive, hep C positive, I mean, whatever. And so you kind of have to go into it knowing you're going to use universal precautions and you're going to be as safe as you can. But as I've told my students, even after 30 something years of working in this area, there's something about knowing what's coming in versus not knowing. Right. And so I, I use the analogy when I was working in the department of health and I was testing animals for rabies I mean, I did hundreds of these a day and we saw high positivity rates and I was vaccinated. So I was somewhat protected, but there was always that danger. But when I would get a human specimen, it, it's just something that kind of makes your brain go, whoa, you know, a human died of this disease. And I think, I think that's what COVID is doing. When I talk to my, my colleagues that are about 15 or 20 years older than me, they talk about the HIV scare. I was in high school when that was happening and I kind of remember that. But for them, people quit the field because they were terrified of the virus. So again, you, you can see some effects around losing majors or losing workers, and that's always a concern. But I, I'm really proud of our students and our recent alumni. We had quite a few that graduated in August, and they're, every one of them has a job and they're working already. Fantastic. But I am, I am hearing these you know, stories of fatigue and of being thrown into things because there's just so much work to do. So that's it's an ongoing concern. So as we move forward here and we get into November, December, January, February, and then it's hard to believe it'll be back to a year, right? In February, March, really, when this thing first came to the United States. What are you keenly interested in when you look at the data, when you look at the information, when you look at the virus itself? What are you interested in as we look forward to where this thing is going? What's the scientific community kind of looking at at this point since we do have more answers about this than we did last March. What are you interested in looking at? What are you planning on doing? Well, there's several things I think a lot of us are interested. I'm certainly interested in the vaccine efforts 
one thing that has occurred, and I will agree with most people on this, is that we have done so much in so little time that it's almost mind boggling. So if this pandemic has done anything for us, it's kind of taught us some lessons with respect to maybe loosening some of the red tape, not the safety, not right. the safety or the efficacy of testing and doing clinical trials and doing it the right way, but knocking down some of that stuff that used to take oh, five, six, seven years to get some of these things done. I think we've shown that with effort and uh, resources and still following the science that we might be able to do some of these things in one to two years. And that's, that's a significant improvement over seven to 10 years on some of these. So that's encouraging. So I'm watching those trials closely like everyone else. The other piece of that that we may have talked about a little bit in the past is distribution of those vaccines and how we're gonna get that done. I've even started looking in personally at some opportunities through Texas states, thinking about our centers and even some of these big ideas. Can we become a hub of vaccine distribution? There are some grants and things like that out there that I'm interested in starting to look at through translational health and some of the other big ideas. So those are those types of things that's going to be really important is once we have vaccines, can we get them distributed? And it might be a, a triage of getting them to the most at risk and then, and then following up with the more healthy people later. So that's a piece as a medical lab and public health person, I'm going to be always interested in the testing aspect. Are we going to get that tightened up and recalibrated with respect to getting a quicker turnaround? There's no reason in the United States why we should be waiting seven to 10 days for a test, maybe early, uh, but eight months into this thing, we should be knowing that within 24 hours, 48 hours at the most. Without that, you can't contact trace uh, effectively. Sure. If it's you seven, yeah. it's just ridiculous to even think about it. So we got to get that figured out. And then as a virologist, public health person, and this might seem kind of strange, but not to my friends that are in the same area, <laughs> just interested in the virus. Will it mutate? Will it evolve? Will we see a second wave due to a change in the, the virus makeup? And will that create more problems? I hope not. But these are RNA viruses like the influenza virus, and they are notorious and diabolical in some ways of mutating. And that's not to scare people, but it is to eyes wide open and be prepared for maybe shifting your vaccine efforts or things like that as we move forward. Let me ask you this, then we'll wrap up. With that being your focus as a virologist and us, as we've talked about, myself included, being ignorant, let's be honest, trials and diseases and how all this works, what do you look for? At what point do you go, it mutated or it didn't? Is there some sort of predictor or something that we all as the public should look for to go, uh-oh, things have changed? Right. You know, if this was 50 years ago, I would say the only thing you would look for is, you know, all of a sudden the massive death rates, you know, something changed, more people are dying, mm -hmm. uh, more cases are occurring. That was kind of the old school way. And, and those are still important. But now with the explosion of genomic technology, RNA, DNA technology, the ability to sequence a specimen within hours of someone being sick, and that's what's happening right now. That's why the Centers for Disease Control, that's why the World Health Organization, that's why the Mayo Clinic, that's why all of these places, the Cleveland Clinic, all these places that do this type of work, public health labs around the country, they are doing this all the time. That's the whole point of a public health surveillance system. We've been doing it with flu forever so that we monitor that brand new H5N1 or whatever strains popping out in the next year so we can get that vaccine ready. We're better equipped. We're better equipped with respect to technology and expertise. 
And so I think we have the tools in the toolkit in place to kind of watch that way more effectively than we did back in 1918, for sure. And even back in the 50s and 60s when we had a massive flu pandemic. So I feel comfortable about monitoring the situation. It'll be on the side of the public following the public health precautions that will continue to be my concern in the next few months, because right now we don't have a vaccine. And regardless of what you hear out there, we don't really have a great treatment or cure. You hear that word kind of bantered around on social media and the public. There is no cure. People are living. People are surviving. That's great. We still need to be concerned about the long-term effects and we really need to prevent as many infections as we can because obviously that lowers the mortality rate. And so lastly, you talked about this, you brought it up that setting dates or times is fool's a fool's errand that because it changes and to do that leads to disappointment and then issues in the national discussion on this whole thing. But is it safe to say that at this point, normal, what we were before March doesn't happen, at least until we get a vaccine? Yeah. And I'm not even sure it'll be with a vaccine. Again, I don't say that to scare people or have them super worried about the future, but one of the things... I've been talking about with people is trying a way for people to think about this is I think this pandemic, the pandemic of 2019, 2020, whatever it eventually gets named, needs to be looked at much like 9-11 changed our life. 9-11 changed how we traveled forever. That's never changing. We're never Mm going to get to walk through an airport line and and lounge around and do what we want. It's serious business now. I think moving forward, This pandemic will change the way the world looks at personal space as well as kind of infection prevention when you travel, especially in in crowded areas. And that's not a nice tight phrase of, you know, air travel changed, but it is going to change how we look at, I think, interactions. Sure. Uh, And I think that's a good thing. I think the world far too long has not really been educated well on those microscopic invaders we don't see them and that's part of the problem you know it's not an army it's not a country it's not an enemy we can see they've killed more than all the wars together when you back it up and look at malaria and other things like the plague and and so forth so i think it's given us some fresh eyes as a society to prepare i'll continue to ask that we think about public health funding to support not just the immediate but the long-term planning for this, including educational programs to build new medical lab professionals, new nurses, new doctors. That takes commitment. You know, Dan, that you can't do that in two or three years. That takes money and time, and it's not popular to think about, but we do it for the DOD, for defense, and really, I think the public health wing should just move under the DOD if that's what it takes. It's I'm just personally speaking about this because it's it's something that we've been fighting for decades. It's not really a political issue. Right. It's a public health issue. Yeah, and it's a, it's unfortunate that clearly it takes something of this scale to even get that conversation kind of moving to where you guys have wanted it to for the last 20 or 30 years. Right. But. I know some of the experts I've been listening to on the news, you know, when I do tune into some of the experts I follow, and I hope this isn't the case, but it kind of makes me worry when they talk about, you know, will it take the death of a loved one to get serious about this? And, you know, that that unfortunately may be coming after this winter, if millions of people, you know, end up dealing with this. So I hope not. I hope not. I hope we can get it together and move forward. Me too. I certainly hope that people listen to what you've said today. Informative, as always, direct, as always, and enlightening, 
as always. Dr. Rodney Rohde, thank you so much for joining us. We could do a week's worth of podcasts with you on this topic, getting down into the science and all sorts of areas, but we really appreciate you catching up with us to talk about COVID-19 and where we've come from, what we need to do, and where we're going with this. Thanks so much, Dan. It is always a pleasure. And, and again, congratulations on the Big Idea podcast. I think this is an, an amazing and really important piece of Texas State's future. And don't forget, viruses are going to virus. Thank you very much, Rodney. Well, everybody out there, thank you for listening to another episode of Big Ideas. And please remember, stay safe and stay healthy. And we'll be with you again next time. Big Ideas TXST is a presentation of Texas State University and the Division of University Advancement. Subscribe to experience more innovative, thought-provoking content. If you like what you hear, consider leaving us a starred review, five if possible. The views expressed during this program are those of the individual participants and do not necessarily represent those of the university. Big Ideas is hosted by Daniel Seed, produced by Jamie Bloschke with technical assistance provided by Manuel Garcia. Strategic consultant is Kelly Raz.